It's good to see everyone. I'm going to go with this one. Oh. It, it spins. We need pages bringing the adult supervision. Thank you very much. Good to see everyone. How are we all doing this Sunday morning? Um, wow, this is it's like a TJ turntable here. Excellent. Um, it is so good to be with all of you. Uh, I feel like every Sunday I, we come to church and we've got new faces, uh, and, but then you're like, but you don't remember my name. And we, we know we've, we've met people multiple times, but uh, thank you. It has been a whirlwind, but I wanted to say thanks for all the prayers and encouragement and uh, gifts and phone calls and the usage of one's truck because we moved into our place on Thursday. So we are, we are officially uh, witches, as it were. So, and we are loving this weather. Um, th like today would be like January 1st or something in San Antonio. Uh, so I'm like, oh, it'll get cold. I, 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 my heart loves that. There's a part of me that I'm like an anti-solar, you know, like kind of panel. I like cold and dark. So I'm loving this. Um, very encouraged. Um, yeah, you're like, wait for it. It'll get a whole lot darker and a whole lot colder. And, you know, that's all right. Um, and I, I'm just, I've just been encouraged to be. So thank you. There's just been a lot of calls, a lot of phone, uh, a lot of phone calls, text messages, offers. Thank you guys very much for that. Um, we have felt more than, more than welcomed. Uh, but I also want to welcome. We've got. I think I was. It was. It kind of happened in passing and a little bit of a surprise. But I'm really encouraged now. Eric and Laura Taylor are back with us. So they came one Sunday, and I was like, Are they just visiting? Will we scare them off? And uh, Eric is made of tougher stuff than that. Uh, we already know Laura is, so that's, that's no surprise. Uh, but it is awesome to have you guys with us. Thank you uh, so much. And, uh, and also, as I, as I saw, I saw the Wisbees were in here, and I was like, man, I just wanted to say, th I don't know where they're sitting. Uh, they're, oh, they're in kids still. Uh, I thought they were transitioning out, so we'll save that. Thank you for them. But when you get a chance, especially if you have children, uh, hug them. Hug them and any of the children's ministry people. They kind of have this uh, kind of grizzled, worn look about them because they've been dealing with your kids. So, uh, so if you want to give them a hug or like a Starbucks gift card or something, I'm sure they will appreciate that. But we're really grateful for that. So uh, especially with small church, we're all family. So we're all part of this. Everyone's serving, which is a really great thing. So um, well, if you got a Bible, turn over to Mark chapter 3 with me. So... We're having a little bit of an encore performance. All right. So we are going to have the surprise part six of Reflections, okay. which, is the, which is really part, you know, part three on Judas. So we're like, man, the most encouraging character in the New Testament. Um, I have just been absolutely loving my Bible study, digging in, and I was getting some input from my wife because that's what I was told smart men do. Uh, so, amen. So did that, not just on a, not clearly, not how I dressed this morning, but uh, about the sermon, and we were talking last Sunday, and I was like, babe, what do you think? And uh, we were running through the sermon, and, you know, and I was like, well, any thoughts? She goes, that whole point, that's, you got to do another sermon. That, that's its own thing. And I was like, and so if you've ever, if you, if you know filmmaking at all, you know that there's like a director's cut, you know, so you get a long movie, but oftentimes there's so much good material that you have to leave on the editing room floor. You just can't get it all in. And too much of a good thing is not a better thing, oftentimes. 
It's just a longer thing. Amen. So she goes, honey, that should be another thing. And I was like, but will people like, they're like, the third sermon on Judas? Bro, can you get some more encouraging Bible study? I was like, are you sure, honey? And she said, no, I'm sure. You should do that. So that's what we're going to talk about today. And if you don't like it, you can talk to Amanda. Um, yeah, or someone's like, no, I'm also a smart husband. I will come talk to you, bro. Yeah, amen. Uh, well, we're going to start in Mark chapter 3. But I have, some people have also asked, they're like, Jeff, like, did someone call you? I'm like, what do you mean? They're like, was that, was that point, like, for me? And I'm like, well, no, but yes. I mean, it's for all of us, I think. But no one's calling me. And like, oh, man. And, you know, Rachel's not on the phone going, could you please help me with Jason? And I'm like, oh, I got just the character. How about Judas? <laughs> like, that's not, that's not how that went down. So if you're like, man, this, it's, it's, and sometimes as we're listening to the word, and I think this is what is so beautiful about God's word and God's spirit, is it actually can speak right to us. And I bet you've had that experience when I was a couple of weeks old as a Christian reading verses and then coming back years later and I feel like it's made new again. And that's the beauty of God's eternal wisdom. And so I've read, I've read a lot of really cool books, uh, but the Bible's not, not, man, nothing's like the Bible. And so as we keep getting into these, and we, but I like to get into the nooks and crannies of these parts, these characters. I don't think I've ever done a series on Judas. And uh, I've just been getting a lot out of my Bible study. So if you're like, Jeff, I'm offended. Someone told you something about me. These were personal. Well, it's not personal. It's, well, it's personal. I mean, we're all family here, but this isn't directly for you. But I do hope you get something out of it. Amen. Fair enough? Amen. Amen. Okay. Mark chapter 3. And this is at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. We're, we're maybe maybe a few months or something into it. Jesus made himself known. We know that he's been, there's some relationship building. Obviously, John the Baptist had James, um, Peter, James, and John, as well as, there, there may have been more, we don't know, you know, but there's definitely a handful of core people in Jesus' ministry that were followers. They were disciples of John the Baptist. They were hearing the word preached. They were hearing about repentance. And what happens is, and you can imagine, and I, and I put this before you, if you had the job of you've got to make a plan, that you've got a thousand days, and you've got to start something that will not just save the souls of you and your family, it's got to carry on until God comes back. It's got to be something that doesn't just excite you and transform you now, but for all people of all cultures, of all generations, of all ages, and all socioeconomic types, and all interests, and athleticism, you know, or at good looks, or not so good looks for some of us. And you had to get them all, and you had to, you got to give them all the best chance, and you have 1,000 days, and you've got to get something going. How would you do it? You're like, I would quit immediately. Uh, reasonable, reasonable, you know, but... But this is what Jesus does, is he begins to go out and preach and teach, and now we start to see that he turns the page, and now we see Jesus starting his ministry. Look at me in, in John, or Mark chapter 3, in verse 13. It says, Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed 12, designating them apostles. The word apostles means one sent. That's why you see later with a lowercase a, you know, people like Barnabas and others that are counted among the apostles because they served alongside of them. They weren't the original apostles, but they were people that were serving with them. These are the OGs. These are the originals. 
And why did he do this? That they might, one, be with him. And two, that he might send them out to preach. And three, and to have authority to drive out demons. It was designated. It was specific. It was intentional. It was purposeful. Verse 16. These are the twelve he appointed. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter. James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. And to them he gave the name Boanerges, which means sons of thunder. That is a man's ministry right there, baby. It's not like... You know, men's of the, you know, the, of the cotton fields of Wichita. No, that's less inspiring. Yeah. You know, you're prickly on occasion, but largely soft. That, that's not, that. no, this was sons of thunder, baby. I love this. And the women are like, what is wrong with you guys? I'm like, Jesus knows how to minister to every person who's in front of him. I appreciate that. Verse 18, Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and... Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Jesus knew how to build build ministry. He wasn't coming to build an audience, and he wasn't coming to build a large megachurch. He was coming to transform people, and he was coming to seek and save what was lost. He was coming to build something that would change the world, and it would change you and me. And and the way that Jesus did this was not with groups of thousands. It was actually a group of a couple of dozen or a handful or two of men and women that were around him. He did it through small groups. And that's not an ICOC thing. That's not an our church thing. That's not a 21st century or an American thing. That's a Jesus thing. Why? Because when we have a small group consistently meeting, we build family. We build relationships. We get it intentionally. When Lewis isn't there and Mary, we're like, hey, hey, we don't see them. Where are they? When those tables, like you can imagine, you go home for dinner. Man, if Juniper isn't at the table, we're like, hmm, that's, that's, that's alarming. One, because she's six, but two, because she's our daughter. And you know when they're not there. And parents who are empty nesters who have talked to me, they know when their kids, they're supposed to be missing from the table. They're out living life, but they're still, that gap is noticed, is it not? Because it's family. That's the way Jesus built ministry. Jeff, why do we talk about small groups? Why are we a church not with small groups, but a church of small groups? Because that's how Jesus built ministry. And, and I'll tell you what, I'm a whole lot less smart. <laughs> I'm a whole lot less smarter than Jesus is. And I am not going to pretend to know how to build better. Something like 75% of the Gospels, as you're reading, is time with Jesus spent with these 12 men. And the only place that you're going to find an individualistic, solo kind of Christianity is when you close the Bible. You won't find it. One, it's not in an Eastern culture. They're never going to assume and think that. That's a community, pluralistic, a community-based culture. It's we before me. It's always been that way. But there's an honor in the group that we serve mom and dad. That's, and you don't survive unless you operate that way. But as Westerners, and as an Amer- American society, especially in the 21st century, we kind of get this thing where, what about me? And what we're looking for is the minimum effective dose of fellowship. I'll see you three weeks. Every three weeks is about good enough for me to survive. And I go, I don't think Jesus would see it your way. His ways are not our ways. 
And we need to see, look, the way that Jesus did it is he built ministry with these small groups of people that were very connected. Now, the amazing thing is when you do that right, it grows like that mustard seed. But God knew we needed friendship. Deep, real, honest, consistent. That's what we need. We need family. We need one another. How many of us have seen that movie Castaway? Tom Hanks is such a great actor, isn't he? He's on the screen for like two hours. It's just him and like a loincloth, right? I mean, you're like, and it's just so captivating. But you remember that scene? Does anybody remember crying when he loses Wilson? Like, it was like Lion King for me all over again. It's like, Wilson! And I'm like, it's a volleyball with your blood on it, dude. Like, but if you don't have friends, you will make friends. You know what I'm saying? That is how we're built as people. And we know it when we see it when it's fiction. And we know it when we see it in ourselves and in one another. And so does Jesus. And so today, one of the questions we're going to ask that I think Jesus helps us see is, what's my connection with Jesus' ministry? Judas is around, these, these, is, is around Jesus and 11 other apostles, deeply, consistently, daily, walking. I mean, they're, they're, they're doing things together. They're, they, they're, they're out there, they're doing miracles. They're walking miles and miles and miles in not comfortable sandals. And they're out there together, and they're out there for years. And man, so much of the gospel, how many times have you just read the Bible and just started laughing? Especially like when Peter's talking, right? You start laughing, and you remember these moments? And we laugh, we almost make fun of the apostles. You're like, idiots, what's wrong with you? You know, you know oh, rebuke Jesus. I'm like, I would have done worse, I'm sure. And we kind of laugh. We make fun of many of the apostles for how ridiculous they are. Kind of how raw. How unspiritual they are. What's wrong with you, bro? But if you think about this, the only way that we can do that is because of how open and honest and raw and vulnerable they are before their Lord. Imagine how you are in, fr in front of your boss, in front of the guy or the girl you like. These guys are doing this in front of full view of all eternity. The, their honest flaws, their real selves are just laid before all eternity in the scriptures, forever. We see the ugly and the inspiring. We see the totally relatable, this, 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 these foolish mistakes, massive mistakes, as well as these incredible moments of faith. We see it all. But let me ask you, how many times do we see this with Judas? How many embarrassing moments? How many foot-in-his-mouth moments? How many, oh, bro, moments? How many you got to repent? How many get-behind-me-Satan moments? How many do we see? In full view of, of all the apostles, all of his brothers, all of his, that band of brothers that they've been in the trenches for years, and the honest answer is not one time. Turn with me to Luke 22. We kind of go to the end and all this starts clicking. The only time we see the real, secret, deep down, raw Judas is when we see him with people outside of Jesus' ministry. Luke chapter 22, read this with me. 
in verse 1 of Luke chapter 22. We all together? Church, we all? Okay. With that extra hour of sleep, I was like, are we all doing well? How many of us just stayed up an hour later? Be honest. Yeah, I did. I totally did. We're moving into our house, so I'm like every hour to like set up something new. Um, it's good. Sorry. Hence the coffee. Amen. Verse 1 of Luke chapter 22. Look at this. We're, to- we're at the tail end now. And it says, Now the feast of the unleavened bread, called the Passover, was approaching. And the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus, for they were afraid of the people. Then Satan entered Judas. Man, you want to talk about a scary phrase to be said about you. Lord, have mercy. Then Jesus entered Judas, called Iscariot, one of the twelve. And Judas went to the chief priest and the officers of the temple guard and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. They were delighted and agreed to give him money. He consented and watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them when no crowd was present. Friends, this actually is coming just after the moment we talked about last Sunday. The nard, the perfume is broken and Jesus is anointed. They get rebuked about the whole, hey, give this money to the poor. What are you doing? Because he just wanted the money. He was the guy that was secretly taking money, right? And the moment, and it says, then immediately he left, and this is what he goes into. I mean, Satan enters Judas. Boom. And he was one of the 12. He's got the Holy Spirit. He's doing miracles, preaching the word, watching and listening to the living word of God, and Satan can enter him. Can you imagine what he's going to at least try to do to you and me? This is not an issue of we are playing church, friends. This is not, oh, where am I a member of? Or I've been, you know how long it's been since I was baptized? You know how long I've been a member? I don't, and certainly Satan doesn't care. And he's not like Jesus in Revelation 2 or 3 that will knock at your door. He will beat the door down if he can. This is scary stuff. It's as real as it gets. And what does Judas do? It says he went to the chief priest and the officers of the temple guard and discussed how he might betray Jesus. Imagine, friends, if it would have said, and he went to one of the other apostles, he went to Alphaeus, he went to James, and discussed what was really on his heart. How would the story of Judas be different? Imagine if it said he went and just he went and grabbed he went and grabbed Tom and they just went for a walk. Or he went, Peter, man, I heard you get rebuked. Can I be honest with you? Can I tell you what I want to do? Can I tell you what I'm wrestling with? Can I tell you what I'm tempted to do? And you go, Jeff, there's not a scripture that commands me to get open about temptation. I go, if you need a command for that, you don't understand what's at stake. It's like a guy who goes to work and he's and some woman's flirting with him and he's married and he, oh, why, why do I need to talk about it? We're not in sin yet. Spoken from a man who doesn't value his marriage. We protect the things we love. And Satan is coming after you and me, friends. This is, this is amazing to me. But I think, can you imagine how different it would have been if Judas would have just turned aside and go, I, guys, I, I, I cannot... Can I tell you what? I can't believe I'm feeling this way. I'm embarrassed. I mean, consider. I mean, can you imagine how different it would be, friends? Don't you wish we had that example from Judas? Of like, man, that's how you get open. 
instead, he goes to the chief priests, temple of the law. And what do they do? They're delighted. Sure. I'll give you some money. I'll agree to that. And they do, and the ball starts rolling. But turn with me back to Matthew 27. And we see, and then we, they all come back. They have Passover, this, the things that we talked about last Sunday where the sop is given, right? God, Jesus extends the bread, and he's saying, man, there's this forgiveness, right? Remember that when he says, man, you still got a place here. There, there's still grace, and there's still forgiveness. You can still be a part of this family. And then, but he still leaves. Everybody remember that from last week. And so what happens is now he leaves from the table. He leaves from that offering of grace. He leaves from the 11 other best friends, this band of brothers, and Jesus who knows everything. They're already talking about who's betraying him. His secret is outed. Everyone knows. But look at this in Matthew chapter 27. Let's look at it first here. What we see, sorry, we're going to pick it up immediately after he leaves. What we see actually when, is that if you remember that discussion, the discussion at the table is, hey, who's going to betray you? Lord, who, who is it? And here's what's wild to me is that these guys have been together three years, almost, almost the day. And not one of his 11 best friends, they don't even got wind of what happened. No one knows the secrets. Nobody. They're all looking around going, who? They don't even suspect him. Which makes me go, no one had any accountability with the money. No one counted. No one knew that anything suspect was going on. Accountability isn't needed. I don't know about that. No one knows the secrets. No one knows what's going on. And I'm like, oh my goodness, man. It's, it's, and I think some of us don't, don't want people to know the secrets. They don't want us to know. We can almost pride ourselves in how much of a poker face and how stoic we are, how independent we are. I got this, bro. I, I can handle this. I can carry my load and the burdens. I've got everything. Thank you. I don't need help. I, I, I got this, and I, we carry the secrets, and I look at him, and I'm, they're around the table, and grace is being offered, and no one knows the real Judas. And the conversation, in fact, he's so out of practice, so that muscle of being honest is so atrophied. They're, they're honest for him, and he flees. And in verse, verse 1 of Matthew 27, it says, Early in the morning, all the chief priests and the elders of the people came to the decision to put Jesus to death. Sorry. Yeah, to, we'll continue. We'll read through this. To, they bound him, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate the governor. When Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and re returned the 30 silver coins to the chief priests and the elders. I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. What is that to us, they replied. That's your responsibility. So Judas threw the money into the temple and left, then went away and hanged himself. After he had betrayed Jesus, 
much like Peter did, yeah? Saw the consequences with his own eyes, much like Peter did. He did have some level of remorse, didn't he? Some level of, man, I've sinned. He's acknowledging it. He goes back. You could even make a case that there's some some version, some maybe diet repentance here. There's something. He's done something. He's gone back. He's had a conversation. He's, in, he's confessing in verse 3 and 4. And then he's, he's throwing, you know, man, he's, he's bringing the coins back. But if you look at, man, who's he talking to? We're back to the chief priests again. And the learned, experienced, right appointed leaders of God's people, the most distinguished spiritual and religious leaders, what's their response? What is this to us? It's your responsibility. Why are you bothering us with this thing? What? It, in fact, another account saying, that's blood money. I, we, can't, we can't accept that. Oh, now we've got conviction. You can give blood money, you just can't take it. And I look at this and I'm like, oh my goodness, friends. The, the people, the friends, the relationships that we let in the most, that we really let influence us, matter very deeply. And it makes me ask, when you're tempted, when you're in sin, when the secrets are deep, when you're at your lowest, the worst version of yourself, when you're weak, defeated, discouraged, or you're even completely ready to walk away, maybe you even have in your heart, who knows that part of you? And what do they say to you? I think sometimes we measure good friends by mutual interests. Oh, we both are Chiefs fans. I'm really in, you know, we're both engineers, you know. Yeah, we've been educators. We're retired educators. We get each other. Oh, we're both moms, or, or we're both singles. Oh, we're both black. We're both white. Oh, that, that's going to be the deepest connection. And I'm like, guys, it's, that's an interesting form of connection, but it's a worldly one. And I think we've got to measure real friendships based on what do they say, those people who know the real you, the real honest goodness you, do they go, here, what's it to me? Oh, your sin, your porn, your adultery, your immorality, your racism, your, your lack of connection, the laziness, the secrets, what is that to me? That's your responsibility. Or do they go, or worse, do we agree and consent and go, yeah, here's a few coins for it. Maybe I'll go with you. And I go, that's just not how what Jesus wants his ministry and his family to be. In fact, friends, I don't know if you knew this. I didn't know this until I started reading my Bible. There's like two or three dozen scriptures in the New Testament alone that say like one another or each other. I bet many of us knew that. Or maybe we're now just remembering it. But these are powerful. This is not, this idea of doing it alone is just not in the scriptures. You don't find it. I mean, Jesus is the, you know, Jesus, Son and the Father and the Holy Spirit, man, not even God does this alone. Goodness sakes. I mean, we, where did we get the idea that we can? Jesus has got this other vision 
of family and ministry. Turn with me quick over James chapter 5. Let's look at a couple of these one another scriptures. And if just a couple of these would have changed Judas's life. James chapter 5. We all together, family? Verse 16. It says, therefore... Confess your sins to God and pray for yourself so that you might be healed. Oh, yeah. You're like, well, sounds good, doesn't it? That's just like the scripture that God helps those that help themselves. You're like, no, that's not a scripture. That's Aesop's fables. And, and I don't think I believe or trust in that either. I mean, Aesop was, must have been, might have been a good guy. I don't know him, but you know what I mean. No, that, that, that's probably the, the, the really American version of James 5, right? But that's actually not what it says. But you wouldn't know that unless you know it, unless your Bible's open. And I don't care what preacher is conveniently spinning the truth to keep you in the pews. Or trying to water this thing down. I don't get the right to do it, and you don't either. And the truth of it is, is that any doctor that would change your prescription or change your diagnosis because they're afraid of how you would react is not a good doctor. And God's word here, what does it say? What is God envisioning and painting for, for his people? No, no, no. It says, therefore, confess your sins to each other. It doesn't say confess that you are a sinner. Also a common practice in modern Christianity. You're like, oh, you confess you're a sinner. Well, yeah. What did you, did you think it was you and Jesus in the perfect club? No, come on, man, we're all, of course you're a sinner. Do you want to talk about it? Like, that's, you know what I mean? No, 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 confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you might be healed. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. That's what God is, is dreaming of this. Of course, go talk to God. Of course, pray about it. But if you stop there, we're not doing what God is asking. But that's, that's not a command. That's an aorist imperative in ancient Greek. If you're like, do you know your Bible? I do. That's a command. Do it. Talk about it. Confess it. Why? I don't know about you. If it wasn't a command, I wouldn't do it. Would you? I'm going to naturally confess all my sins to people because I love feeling embarrassed and ashamed. No. It's because I love what's on the other side of it now with some practice. I love the freedom that comes. I love also the best friendships that are forged in it. I remember the first time I went to an, an, an international campus ministry conference. How many of us were ever a part of our campus ministries? One of the reasons I love our campus ministry, I'm so excited to keep going. The Hoyles have been awesome. We're, gonna, we're bolstering that team. We're very excited. I've been talking to several people around the country about hiring a couple or a pair of singles to come and work full time here. Pray for that. We're just praying. We want good people. Not just, you got a pulse? Come on in. You know what I mean? You know, we're, we're trying to figure, we, gotta, we, the, we want the right fit here. But I remember the first time going to the campus ministry conference. Man, I was, I was really young as a Christian. I remember the first night, I remember a couple of guys, we didn't know each other. We stayed up till like 3 a.m. just talking. And we were telling, our, and it started with telling our stories about how we became Christians and just dumping out the sin. Man, the guy I was before I found Jesus, oh, and just the embarrassing stuff. And I, and I remember guys going, dude, I'm so glad you're here. here here's my story. And I remember what happened is those, those guys are still my friends 21 years later. And sometimes we begin to believe the lie that, no, 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 we got to get to know each other for a while before we're honest. 
We need to be best friends before we really confess. And I actually wonder if we don't have best friends because we don't. Maybe the best friends we're looking for is the other side of, hey, can I, can I tell you about who I was before I found you? Can I take it a step further and tell you about the guy I am right now and needing to be a little bit more like Jesus? You guys ever remember those conversations? I know I do. Has it been a while? Man, I think there's a reason why God's commanding this, and it isn't because he's trying to torture us. It's not Bruce Almighty. Remember that with Jim Carrey? That God is a God. I'm an ant, and he's a a man with a magnifying glass trying to burn my feelers off. That's not this verse, man. And people are absolutely taking their own life because they don't have this one verse turns a key, friends. Does Does that make sense? Do you believe that? Because I do. And I thank God he commanded it. Turn with me over to Hebrews chapter 3. This one other. Speaking of honest brothers, confessing your sin to you. No. Uh, I have a, we, had a, we have a brother. Um, I won't name him, but his name rhymes with Mason. Uh, and so, okay, this hypothetical brother, Mason, uh, doesn't have any hair, good-looking brother, bald, glasses, great guy. Very zealous for the Lord. And I appreciate it, yeah. Uh, uh, witness protection program. We'll keep his identity completely between you and me. And I remember he was talking to me, and he was he, he was like, man, let, let's get barbecue. And I remember he was like, man, and, and you're preaching, you, you kind of say, hey, hey, does this make sense a lot? And I was like, I appreciate that feedback. He's like, it's kind of a phrase. It comes out. And I was like, I'm going to work on that. And I remember coming back because I'd been preaching in Portuguese so much, I had to say that because I'm like, is this Portuguese making sense? Because it probably didn't. And some people would go, no. I'm like, okay, let me try that again. And I remember I, had, and I don't know if you're like me, like I preach for a living. I've been doing this for a couple of decades now. And if you're like me, there's that tinge of, oh, feedback. What are you trying to say? Hey, hey, what are you trying to say? And I don't know where that comes from, but I appreciated the conversation. Mason has been been preaching for a while. He doesn't have to be perfect in order to give me feedback, and I appreciated that. And then after last Sunday, he goes, hey, you did a lot better, bro. Thank you for that. And I was like, I'm paying attention, man. Thanks for the feedback. Because if you're like me, without the perspective of someone else, you actually can find yourself doing things that you're not even aware of. Blind spots. It's annoying to everyone else, and you don't know you're doing it. So even the other friends will thank you for giving feedback to your friend, right? Does that make sense? It's good. It's good for me. Thank you, Mason, for that. That was very helpful. I hope you're all be- I hope you're all beneficiaries of his boldness. But in Hebrews chapter three, it's not just critical feedback. Sometimes we hear the word discipling or feedback or whatever word we've chosen to use because the old one hurt us or something. But whatever the word you're using, sometimes what can happen is we think, he really, that bro really discipled me. Or she really discipled me as if the only version of discipleship is strong correction rebuke. And I'm like, no, no, no. Disciple, discipling is helping to make each other more like Jesus. That's what we're doing until he comes back. 
which if you've ever coached anyone at any age or parented anyone at any age or seen someone do it, which is pretty much all of us, you know that about 90% of coaching, you give critical, constructive feedback. You break someone's spirit, they'll stop doing it at all. So much of our job, even in the ministry, is encouragement and teaching. And, hey, let's go. And look at this. Hebrews chapter 3. It says in verse 12, it says, See to it, brothers and sisters, amen, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by what? Since deceitfulness. Both sin and, Satan and sin are incredibly good liars. And let me let you know, if you, if you knew it, you wouldn't be deceived. Fair? You're like, well, I, I, I know I'm being deceived and I don't care about that. No, you're not being deceived. You're just, you're just taking what you want. When you're deceived, you don't know it. You're being lied to and you're unaware. So some of us are like, no, I know what's going on in my heart. Well, uh, then Satan's got you beat twice. What we, and how do you beat deceitfulness? You get the perspective of someone else who's not. Does that make sense, Mason? And I think some of us go, I agree with that, but I don't know if I want to agree with that. You follow that? I know I'm there sometimes. But in verse 14, it continues to tell us what's at stake. How big of a deal is this? It says, we have come to share in Christ if, if we hold firmly till the end the confidence we had at first. And so we see not only this holding on to faith is actually combined with how we do this one another thing. Friendships matter. Who you let in influence you. It matters. So let me ask you, what do the people who know you, the real you, the secret you, the sinful you, the insecure you, the proud you, the real you, the, the unvarnished you, what do they say? Are they colleagues in sin or are they real godly friends? And not all godly friends just grab a sledgehammer when they see you've got a problem, right? I think that has been, in, in my youth, I think I only had a hammer in my toolbox, so everyone was a nail. I think some of us can probably relate to that. But some of us then have repented from ever using a hammer again. And that's not repentance, that's fear and deception. We're, we're, we know. We're not going to fall off one side of the cliff to just go over and fall off the other. There is truth, and there's grace. There's love, and there's honesty. There's truth and conviction, and then there's connection, compassion, and vulnerability. We need it all. Yeah. We need, you go to Golden Corral. I did, went there with my, as a kid with my dad. Now I go as an adult, and I'm like, Ooh. the quality of food is, to be, is, is, is found wanting, is it not? Yes. You don't go to Golden Corral for quality. You go for quantity. And when you're a young person, quantity has its own kind of quality. But we come to church, sometimes we kind of want it like that. You're like, I'll take the encouragement, thank you. I'll take the side hug and the, and the, and the happy sermons, but get the Judas sermon out of here. Thank you very much. No, I think we need the whole buffet, friends. At least spiritually. 
And friends, I think sometimes we begin to have friendships, even here in the church, where we, where we hide and we become each other's secret keepers. If you ever read the, that story about Ananias and Sapphira, marriages can do this. It's not just singles, not just young people, not just old people. We all can do it. And it can literally kill you, physically and spiritually. More than that, maybe we go from not just, I mean, sometimes, honestly, we, wanted, we are closer to people outside of the church because we just don't want the truth anymore. We just don't want to change. And my question this morning is, is that how you feel? Like, Jeff, I'm just not hungry for righteousness anymore. I just don't want it. Thank you, I've had enough. I'll take dessert and I'll go outside. I just want it my way. And so we go find friends that won't just go, hey, what's that to me? I'll have my thing, you have your thing. You've got your truth, I've got my truth. That's foolishness. Or, hey, you deal with your marriage, I'll deal with marriage. You deal with your finances, I'll deal with my finances. You deal with your purity, bro, I'll deal with mine. And we start to build these high fences. High fences. And what we find ourselves being is we're kind of the lone sheep in our own pen with the lion. And there's no hope. Is anyone tracking? Is that a fair statement for some of us? And what can happen is we spend so long blaming other people for things they've done, we forget that the friendships and the connection and the confession and the honesty and the realness and the vulnerability is what we need to get to the other side and find freedom and healing. And so Satan's an incredibly good at his job, friends. He doesn't care if you walk away because of sin and riches or because of sorrow. I mean, weeping and gnashing of teeth is what it describes people in hell. In hell, they're still angry and still sad. Some people are literally so angry and proud, hell can't break it. Still gritting their teeth. I can't believe that, brother. Can you believe it? In hell? Man, I, I want to get help before I'm ever in that place, don't you? And I'm just so glad that we're in a church where we're filled with friends like that, that we get to be that. We get to be honest. We get to be real. And when someone, so you don't have to go to a booth and confess through a grate in secret with someone. We can look each other eye to eye, and I can go, bro, Rob, can I tell you what I'm wrestling with? And he can go, me, here's what I'm, let's pray. Let's talk. Hey, can we talk in a couple of days? Because I want to be like Jesus. I don't just want to keep confessing. I want to change, and I want to be free. And I need you. Wow, what a blessing, what a gift. I don't know if anybody, how many of us like kind of research and like science-y, maybe medical research, psychological research? How many of us are kind of, I don't know, fake, you know, fake PhD or MDs? You get on WebMD and you've diagnosed yourself with four different things. Hypochondria being the first of them, yeah. And so I think what's, what's ironic is, I, I, did a lot of, I did a lot of addiction research in, in, in work when I was in my, in my master's program. I want to do disaster mental health. But you have to pick like a practicum and an internship work where you're working with people. Well, many of us are very aware now, especially in the last five to six years, about all the opiates, right? Mm -hmm. Opioid addiction. I mean, fentanyl's huge now. 
Fentanyl just came on the scene when I was doing my inter internship work. It started to break out. But we worked with a men's heroin group, ma mainly opiates, but it was mainly heroin. And the, the kind of the, in the industry, what, I mean, what people say is you, you, don't, you don't get cured, you die of that. And there's a lot of things behind that, but they've done, driven a lot of research and they're trying to find what is the cure for addiction, right? What, what's the cure? What do you do? And what they found was, it's unbelievable, and it started with some rat research, because uh, it always kind of does. They use mice, poor mice. There's going to be a lot of mice in heaven. They've given their lives for us. Uh, maybe in their own section of heaven. they got their own little cage in heaven or something. Um, but what they find is they actually they, they, they put wires directly into their brain what happened is, is that they, they were able to go up, and as much as they want, they could hit a button and essentially get hit with opiates. And what, we ha what they did is they, they, they compared these, these two groups. So you have, you have these groups of isolated mice, which mice are a lot like humans. We're pack animals. And then they had ones that were normal and naturally functioning families. And what they found was you isolate a mouse, and you go up and hit it. They'll take it, boom. And then they'll hit it again. And they'll hit it again and they'll hit it again until they're dead. But what's ironic is that you put that same, same species of rat, nothing's different, you put them in a functioning, healthy family of rats, they'll hit it once and go, Ew, and they won't go back. And you find the same identical thing that happens in people. Essentially, what is the cure for addiction? It's actually connection and relationships. Why do we go back and use, abuse, and finally get dependent on chemicals or shopping or porn or gambling? Because we're trying to change how we feel. And a massive part of that, even if you go see a counselor, is what is the support system around you? What's the community like? We're built for that. Scientists know. Professionals know. God knows. Make sense, friends? And I wonder, in this group, are we people that just say, what's that, what's your, what's that responsibility? What's that to me? What's your responsibility? Your sin, your, your problems, your issues. Or worse, maybe we hand each other silver coins and go find the sin together. Hey, bro, I know you're really wrestling with that. Here, keep going. There's never a call to change. Maybe there's even support. We think we're supporting them, and we're just handing them the gun. Anybody else in here remember their very first car? Mine was a 1985 Mazda 626 hatchback. White. Someone's like, wow, it's an antique. What's a hatchback? You're like, okay. <laughs> Mine, the definition of not cool. Had a sunroof, didn't open. Had a, had a driver's side door, also didn't open. <laughs> so I distinctly remember going backwards through the McDonald's, you know, drive-through to get a McFlurry with my friends. They're like, now we're crawling in through the passenger up and over, because it was a manual transmission, which is, you know, a little bit, you know, I don't have terribly long legs, that was fun. So getting over that little mountain in the middle, and I, and I remember it, and it was like the definition of not cool, but I'll tell you what, it was much cooler than, not, than, than walking, was it not? Oh, yes, it was. And I never had a problem with my friends rolling with me. I was the first of my friends to drive. And I remember, we got it for free. They should have paid us, but we got it for free. And, and so, because it was free, I didn't check the oil. Hey, of course, why, why, oil, what's that? It checks itself, does it not? No. And it burned a lot of oil. 
I was like, burning oil, what do you mean? Is that like a lamp? Is that, you know, some parable of the 12 virgins? No, bro. My, and it burned a lot of oil. And so in about, I didn't know that until about six months later. When I distinctly learned that lesson as we were coming on the, you know, off the, uh, kind of the overpass, coming down off the exit ramp of the highway by my house, and the engine seized up. That was a fun experience. And my dad asked me a couple of normal questions. So when was the last time you checked the oil? And I was like, I'm sorry, could you repeat the question? Um, it was free. Wasn't very valuable to me. Didn't take great care of it. Uh, my next major car was a 1995 Saturn SL2. Like teal. Like it was the definition of early 90s. Uh, that was slightly more valuable than me. I had to pay for that a little bit. But I remember it got broken into a couple times. Things happened, got dinged, and I patched it up. I just, you know, I made it work, changed the oil this time, amen. Uh, not nearly on the right timing. But it was, it was, you know, slightly more valuable. It was great. But my first real car, actually, was when I moved to San Antonio. I bought a 2007 Honda Accord. It was brand new. I should have never done that. I will never be buying a brand new car again. Uh, uh, and so, but I remember for, like, the first two years, like, every week I had it washed. It said her name was Lolita. I had her nails done. I was like I was trying to take care of her. She was kind of like, you know, or Lydia, I'm sorry, Lydia, because she was kind of that purple, purple blue. And I was like, you know, keep it spiritual, get her nails done, take, take care of her. And I remember, and it took about two years before I stopped doing it. And again, the car kind of just lost its swag, lost its value, right? And friends, you are not a $1,500 used Honda Civic. You are not a 1995 or 1985 used sedan that if your engine seizes up, we'll just get a new one. You're not a beater. You're not a throwaway. You're the million dollar race car. You're valuable. You're far too valuable to have you pulled over, broken on the side of the road or in a garage, out of the race, out of commission, which Satan, if you weren't that valuable, Satan wouldn't care about you. But he does, and he's relentless. And I could patch my Saturn up pretty easy, but I mean, a million dollar F1, you have a pit crew, and friends, that's what we need in one another. We need fans, we need friends, we need supporters, and we need some professionals that are in our lives. We need it. So who speaks truth into your life? Who tells you the honest truth? Who do you give, the, who do you give that license to, to be honest with them? Mason, that's right. Uh, truth be told, Mason kind of took that license to speak truth, but I appreciate that he did. And we, got, we, we do need to talk about mental health. And suicide. Because that's what we're faced with at the end of the story. And we live in a world right now where mental health and even very successful clinical psychologists and therapists are talking about the, the kind of casual Instagram, TikTok, mental health conversation. Not only is it garbage, it's actually toxic to marriages. It's becoming toxic. Um, and it's destructive, in fact. And we live in a world right now where mental health and the language about depression or anxiety, suicide, we throw that out a lot. And we don't really, many of us don't really know what we're talking about. And the psychological disorders 
or self-diagnosed, or we're diagnosing each other's kids, or just <laughs> other parents of kids. We throw it out. It's pretty casual. Or that all suicide is always depression-driven, and it's not. And I want to encourage us all. One, here in our church, we actually believe in mental health counseling and having professionals, licensed, professional, medical professionals in your life, and you need it. And I don't mean everybody. I mean we as a larger group. That's a part of that. Someone goes, oh, that's just kind of mental health mumbo-jumbo. No, it isn't. And I want to encourage us. One, if you're not a licensed physician, psychologist, or therapist, please do not diagnose others or yourself. Or yourself. Two, if you think you have something, a disorder, depression, anxiety, go see a professional and get the help and the God-given gift of medicine that we have. Go use it. Get it. You're too valuable to play games on it. Some of us have genuinely wrestle with suicidal thoughts, and we go, oh, man, or some of us know people who do, and if I mention the word suicide, that they're, that's going to encourage them to commit suicide. No. Every shred of evidence says, screams the opposite. And you go, hey, are you having thoughts about killing yourself? How are you doing with that? I've got friends that we are consistently going, hey, how are you doing with the thoughts, bro? How are you doing with suicidal thoughts? We're not calling the thoughts to hurt yourself. No, they're not trying to hurt themselves. And self-harm and suicide attempts are different. In fact, they're driving towards opposite targets, actually. People self-harm in order to feel alive. People are attempting to get suicide because they don't want to feel the way they feel while they're alive. Does that make sense? That didn't just die, you know, make you a clinical professional. That's just sharing some insight here. But go see a, see a professional. You are far too valuable. One, to be on the sidelines when we have the cure. We have treatment. And three, if you're not a licensed professional, please keep your strong opinions about the existence of mental illness, psychological disorders, or how you believe everyone should deal with them to yourself. Or go talk with someone who is a professional. Because when you haven't lived it, it's actually kind of easy to have some opinions until you're neck deep in it, and you have to learn that world. It's very different. Is that a fair statement for those of us that know this? I have on two different occasions in the ministry with enormous team of people who know me and talk to me consistently, not because of secret pornography or debt or abuse, some sin that's hidden. No, on two different occasions in the last almost eight years, I've seen clinical professionals and gotten medication. And now I've gotten off of it. Because of general anxiety due to burnout. And so part of me is going, I'm, I'm one in front of you going, and I have known friends, literally Amanda and I, in the ministry, at least one occasion I can think of vividly, where we are on the phone talking one of our campus girls to get off of the roof she wants to jump off. It's real. Yes. Satan is happy to put his hands around your neck and take your life and get you out of, out of the game in any way he can. Friends, we all need, we need a pit crew. We need help. And some of the ways we get that help and we build that community is actually professionals. And if you're wrestling with something, you're like, Jeff, I don't even know what to do with this. I don't know where to go. Come talk to one of the staff. Come talk to a small group leader. We want to help. You're, you're, this is the safest place in the world to be broken. As ones who have wrestled with it and can help with resources. And so I want to say with us this morning, 
as we end. We all need each other spiritually. We're all almost certainly at some point going to need mental, emotional, spiritual, and even physical help. But when Ken blows his knee out, or when, you know, and everyone runs to him to help. But when someone breaks their amygdala, sometimes we run away. We don't know what to do. And we're going to be a family where we run to each other. Whether it's wrestling with the difficult things in our own heart and our own fears and our own things, or it's being dealing with the fear of being able to speak truth to, truth to one another. We're going to be family here. Amen. We're going to be the men and women around each other. We're not going to let each other be like Judas. We're going to talk to the best of our ability. We're going to be honest with one another. And I want to encourage us, don't be like the chief priests. Don't be like those temples of the guard. Don't have the title, but don't have the heart to be honest and real and save each other like Jude talks about. Snatching each other from the fire, it says. Let's be friends. Let's be disciples. Let's be brothers and sisters in the faith. But let's also go get the help we need if we need it. Where we encourage one another. And if we are out of our depth, You've got help here. We all do. And if you need to talk about secret sin or you need to talk about, I think I got depression. I've got suicidal thoughts. I need help. There's no help here that you cannot find because we love one another. Judah teaches us so many lessons, friends. But the, one of the biggest lessons that we need one another. We need help. None of us can do this together. I hope the last few weeks have been encouraging, inspiring, and challenging to you. I know this Bible study has been for me. I'm going to invite the singers to come on up for one last song, and that's going to end our service for today.